Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. This is Nick. This episode is a little bit unique. For our YouTube channel, we created a seven-part series of Jared going through the history of the Mau Mau Rebellion and the colonization of Kenya by the British. The first video he created uh, a while ago as part of a course that we teach together on resistance and revolution. And it was just a historical context leading up to the Mau Mau Rebellion. Uh, and then recently he created six more videos to make that a seven part series on our YouTube channel. If you haven't been on our YouTube channel, check it out. You can just search revolution and ideology there. We post uh, all of our episodes in video form on the channel in addition to other videos that we create. So for this episode, I edited the audio for those videos into one long episode. So it's basically those seven videos combined together to provide a really uh, comprehensive, I think, overview of the history of the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya. So hope you enjoy. So any discussion of Kenya uh, and the Mau Mau Rebellion and the ensuing British counter-revolution requires context. And the context we're going to be discussing is colonial disposition and rampant racism. So we'll start with why the British were in Kenya. And we'll answer with shit, why were the British anywhere? Uh, colonial uh, exploitation of labor, land, and resources. Uh, those resources include things like cattle, coffee, rice, and tea. Um, but it's also important to understand that England was not alone in its colonial exploitation of Africa. Dating all the way back to the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885, Africa had been carved up, as, as the title indicates, in Berlin, Germany, by colonial powers without inviting any people uh, in any of the African nations they decided to dispossess of their land. Kenya, needless to say, was given to the British. By 1895, the British officially claimed Kenya as a protectorate during the neo-colonial era. And by 1901, a railway connecting Uganda and Kenya that the British used for the uh, export of a lot of the raw materials they were getting from other African colonies was completed, further uh, creating, much more, uh, creating much more interest in Kenya as a colony. As far as dispossession is concerned, Kenya experienced a traditional colonial land grab. And when I say a traditional colonial land grab, it actually looks an awful lot like what took place to the indigenous people of North America, places like Mexico, the United States, and Canada, in that uh, uh, basically it, the colonial land grab is started by violence, then eventually land seizures, then laws are created by the oppressing class, laws that don't necessarily apply equitably across the entire population, fake treaties are eventually used, and then eventually territories just claimed uh, under written documentation, which is important for us to understand how seven million, seven million acres of land was taken from Kenyans, and primarily, primarily from these tribes, the Kikuyu, the Nandi, the Jiriami and the Maasai, these were the four groups that were most affected. The English justified this, and I'm going to read a quote here from Francis Hall, uh, that there is only one way of approving Waikuku, and that is to wipe them out. This led to eventually campaigns that some would call ethnic cleansing. As far as organization is concerned in the colony, uh, a colonial office in London uh, oversaw the local prefectures that all answered to a local government in, in the capital, Nairobi. 
there were two types of settlers that ended up in Kenya. The first were South African settlers that could not actually hack it in South Africa. But it's important to note these South African settlers. South Africa was also a British colony. And the fact that these uh, uh, British citizens, more or less, or, or British colonists couldn't hack it in South Africa says quite a bit about their inability uh, to even be good settlers or good colonists. It's also important to note that by getting their teeth cut in South Africa, they entered into Kenya with wildly racist views already because of their experience in things like the Zulu Wars and later on the Boer Wars. Uh, the other group of settlers that, that England uh, attempted to fill Kenya with were uh, basically elites from England that could not, again, just like the uh, settlers of, coming from South Africa, could not necessarily hack it, in, in, but in this case, couldn't hack it in England. Uh, these were uh, elites that were, for whatever reason, caught beneath a glass ceiling. They could not actually exert the power of their family name uh, because of limited land, limited resources, or in, in some cases, even limited titles. Uh, so they ended up moving to Kenya during this period of time as well. Um, there were four legal regulations um, that the colonial government implemented in Kenya to force repression and assimilation during this period between basically uh, the start of the 20th century and the 1950s. Uh, the first of these legal rev uh, uh, regulations was the creation of reserves, or I'm reading between the lines, they were creating reservations. And, and again, clearly learning um, from their compatriots in places like Australia, the United States, and New Zealand in the way to dispossess indigenous people from their land. They also implemented these things called hut and poll taxes, um, which usually equated to about two months full wages for a, a Kenyan laborer. So essentially, any time a Kenyan decided to build a hut, they were taxed by the British. Um, and the poll tax was literally, they were being taxed for, for existing, by, by, by basically each person paid a tax for existing. They also issued these things called uh, uh, kipande, which were basically ID cards. And these ID cards were meant to track movement, employment, finger groups, uh, what ethnic group a person was a member of, and they were forced to wear them around their collar, uh, uh, basically like a, like a necklace. Um, and these ID cards had to be uh, always worn around the neck, and uh, Kenyans were always subject at checkpoints or by any British official uh, to reveal their identification, which seriously, seriously compromised the prior uh, freedoms of, of indigenous people in Kenya. They were not used to systems like this. Identification is used more often uh, for repressive measures than it is uh, to engage in society, in civil society, in any progressive or positive ways. Um, they also sought to control the uh, indigenous Kenyans um, through, essentially, if Kenyans were allowed to keep any of their land, uh, they were only allowed to grow things on that land for subsistence, things like food uh, or other crops, but nothing that could be turned into a commodity and thus compete uh, in the market with uh, British settlers. Uh, land, privati land privatization at this time also led to uh, violent seizures, seizures, and the Kikuyu were forced uh, basically to work on the land of white people for wages, which essentially, once you dispossess uh, the Kenyans of their land, forcing them onto these reserves, and then, of course, bussing them in from the reserves or moving them in from the reserves to work on settler land is clear exploitation of labor. The only thing that keeps it from being full-blown slavery is the implementation of very, 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 very low wages, um, which is important. They also, Kenyans were also not given any sort of 
formalized labor rights, as was common uh, back in the UK at the time for uh, British labor. And, uh, and, and it's important to understand that any sort of organization or any form of resistance by Kenyan labor was met with violence even before the Mau Mau Rebellion. So things like flogging, whipping, things that we'd be familiar with in a, uh, a slave-based society. To give an example of how bad uh, land dispossession got for the Kenyan people, um, Nyanza province was a province in which 30,000 whites owned 12,000 square miles uh, of land. In contrast, 1.2 million Kikuyu had to share only 2,000 square miles of land. That's how inequitable uh, land dispossession, or how land dispossession created such uh, vast inequity in Kenya. Uh, there's also a cultural problem that was tied to this. Rich within, specifically the Kikuyu uh, heritage and culture, was land. Land was, was everything. It was part of the people. It was part of the culture. It also was a symbol of wealth, of status. And essentially, by removing the Kikuyu from the land, they were stealing, the British in this case, were stealing portions, not just of the culture, but individuals' identity um, and their status within society, not only uh, among their peers, but uh, in themselves. When looking in the mirror, a kikuyu cannot be a kikuyu without land. Also important to note is agency and resistance began well before the Mau Mau uh, became a thing. For example, these are the forms of resistance and agency that existed immediately before the rise of the Mau Mau Rebellion. First and foremost, uh, many Kikuyu began to squat. It, simply put, there was way too much land for even the whites to manage, as we saw with the example of the Nyanza province. And uh, effectively, squatters would end up taking land that the whites could not effectively manage. And the whites, more or less, or at least some of them, allowed Kikuyu to farm this land as long as the whites were allowed to share in some of the profit. Other forms of resistance uh, became more staunch as the 1940s and eventually 1950s wore on. Uh, strikes became uh, very prominent. Kikuyu began to grow the illegal crops they were supposedly not supposed to be uh, commodifying. They began to intentionally overgraze cattle, um, and they organized, especially when they were forced into labor situations, go slows, where they intentionally worked as slowly and poorly as possible to hurt the bottom line of, of the settlers that were oppressing them. It's also during this time that we see the formation of the Kikuyu Central Association. Uh, it's led by a man named Johnstone Kenyatta, who will play a, a very important role in Kenya's development going forward and, and even in this module. And the important part of the KCA was that Kenyatta wanted to use the colonial channels available under the colonial leadership to address certain problems. In simple terms, he decided he wanted to play the political game of the British to try and make changes uh, that would be positive for Kenyans going forward. The British responded to a lot of these changes by manufacturing chiefs specifically for the Kikuyu uh, tribes and nation which is important because the Kikuyu were formerly a stateless society that even though they had leadership, that leadership was ever evolving and importantly was a leadership that was usually shared among elders rather than having a singular coercive or oppressive chief as we would call it in Western society. The chiefs were then of course co-opted by the British with material rewards or land rewards to keep order as they saw fit. These chiefs also developed laws, again, overseen by the colonial committees, by the British, that basically 
anybody that broke any of these laws would be forced into labor situations. And it's important to understand that the laws necessarily uh, became much more oppressive in hopes that more people would break them so that the British settlers could get more free labor. Uh, after World War II, uh, many Kikuyu, who actually fought on the British side uh, during World War II, came back and expected uh, some positive changes in their lives because of the sacrifice they made for the British during, during World War II, a war that was certainly not Kenya's. Uh, and they came back and received none of the favors that they expected, or in some cases were even promised, by the colonial officials. It's also important to note that in a post-World War II society, the United States growing economy became one of the most important markets for the colonial goods being produced in Kenya. And the British had, this represents just another important imperative for the British to maintain their colonial control over Kenya. Um, the last measure that we want to talk about before the outbreak of the Mau Mau Rebellion was uh, Johnstone Kenyatta, who changed his name eventually to Jomo Kenyatta's formation of the Kenyan, uh, the Kenyan African Union, better known as the KAU. Uh, and again, this was an enhancement, hoping that he could use Western methods of change to, to coerce, not even coerce, to motivate the British to become a little bit more equitable in their dealings with Kenyans. Mau Mau Oathing, again, in terms of resistance to the British, began in 1943, and it was mostly done by the Kikuyu uh, uh, peoples that had been removed and placed on reserves by the British white settlers. And again, this was all done wildly violently, also through various forms of legislation, but of course that legislation, we would argue, is illegitimate as it was colonial. The Oathing uh, sought to bring the Kikuyu um, back to their uh, Kenyan identity through practice, ritual, beliefs, uh, eschewing the assimilation of their oppressor, i.e. the British, while also mirroring their violent tactics. It created a new solidarity and morally bound these individuals uh, during hard times. Some might argue that it was a bit ethnocentric and perhaps used some nationalist ideology, but again, these were the tactics that had been socialized into the system by the British colonial process dating all the way back to the late 1800s, as was discussed in the historical context video. The Kikuyu at this point had also seen the failure of playing the games um, as set, or playing by the rules of the games as set by their white oppressors. So in other words, using political parties or labor organization that was uh, allowed in certain parts of Kenya, especially for other groups besides the Kikuyu, was not working for them. Um, so they decided that they needed to form an actual revolutionary movement. Uh, a lot of this was... Um, Put together through propaganda, a popular writer named Gakara Wawanju began writing about Kikuyu glory, resistance, beliefs, went back into like the mythos of what it meant to be a Kikuyu, a Kikuyu warrior, um, and he eventually uh, caused enough of a stir that the British labeled him as a subversive. He's eventually banned by the British colonial leaders. Um, some of his more important works include the Creed of Kikuyu and Mumbi. Uh, we highly recommend uh, you check that out. You can find it in PDF files just through a quick uh, Google search if you're a little bit curious about the writings of Gakara Wawanju, but what it did is it galvanized the movement quite a bit. Um, propaganda, of course, is necessary for all revolutionary or social movements. The ceremonies in terms of oathing, these are what really scared the British colonial powers 
not just the ones in Kenya, but of course, when news made it all the way back to England itself, um, there was, uh, again, almost mass hysteria that these oathing ceremonies were taking place. The ceremonies mixed the power of the ideal and material symbolism of what it meant to be a Kikuyu, both historically and in terms of the current resistance movement. And again, it bound these individuals in solidarity, belief, practice, importantly, tactics, and again, identity. Uh, To briefly describe the process of oathing, or at least most of the processes of oathing, obviously it evolved over the years uh, from the uh, late 1940s through the mid-1950s, but in in sum, essentially it worked as an individual would pass through a banana leaf arch, they would be stripped naked, uh, especially if they were wearing um, colonial clothing. It was meant to, like, remove their colonial identity under the British and to be reborn um, as a kukuyu. They usually had a goat sacrifice. That goat sacrifice was eaten after the affirmative acceptance of the uh, individual into the Mau Mau movement. They were then given an in-depth history lesson of what it meant to be a Kikuyu, again, dating all the way back to like their creation narratives um, and essentially how that more or less rationalized the violence that was going to take place against their colonial power, not just against the colonial powers, but other Kenyans that were used in the process of their oppression. So here is an example of one of the oaths that would be spoken. I speak the truth and vow before God. And before this movement, the movement of unity, the unity which is put to the test, the unity that is mocked with the name of Mau Mau, that I shall go forward to fight for the land, the lands of Kiranyaga that we cultivated, the lands which were taken by the Europeans. And if I fail to do this, may this oath kill me. May this seven kill me. May this meat kill me. And again, this is just one example of the oaths, but it was one of the more popular examples that was used quite often. These oaths swore the individual, the oath taker, to protect the Kiyama, the Kikuyu Kiyama, which essentially means the, key, the, the Mau Mau Council, uh, for lack of a better English term. There were seven levels of oathing that were progressively created as the Mau Mau garnered, as the Mau Mau garnered clout. These seven levels uh, eventually created more and more commitment as you kind of worked your way up uh, into each level. The ultimate level would be the seventh level known as the Batuni, which basically when you take that oath, you are binding yourself to basically be willing to kill for the Mau Mau movement, for liberation of not just the Kukuyu people, but of Kenya from, uh, from England. Importantly, Oathing distinguished the true freedom fighter Mau Mau from the Kikuyu that were willing to sell out their own people, often called loyalists. These loyalists were often given material rewards like land or cattle uh, to basically, again, work against, if not sometimes uh, actively like torture, uh, their, their fellow Kenyans. The practical meanings of Oathing Uh, evolved over time, but also left space for individuals to interpret their own place within the rebellion. It was a rejection of the colonial unnamed chiefs. It was a reclamation of land that was sought. It ended forced labor or sought to end forced labor. It basically envisioned a Kenya for Kenyans. There was beauty in this ambiguity. And again, each individual could place their own values within the ambiguity or the vague notion of these seven layers of resistance that the Mau Mau would basically uh, accept through the process. Oathing uh, garnered attention all the way back in the UK as early as 1950. 
And the only way that the colonial officials uh, could envision reacting to this oathing process was through militant violence. Uh, Diplomacy was not going to work. They thought that they needed to, of course, uh, uh, squash this movement before it became too big. The tactics of the Mau Mau themselves were relatively simple. Uh, Basically, they were going to create... um, Uh, They were going to fight a guerrilla war. There was also going to be targeted assassinations. At first, the targeted assassinations were not the colonizer. They were the loyalists, and one of the most uh, key, one of the most famous examples took place in 1952 when Chief Waruhiu uh, was assassinated in his car. There was also destruction of settler property, and eventually, of course, later settlers too. Uh, so there would be mass sla- uh, slaughter of their livestock, burning of crops. These things were meant to hit their oppressor, i.e., the colonial uh, Brit- uh, British citizens, in the wallet. There were also violent land seizures, and there was land reclamation by the Mau Mau Freedom Fighters. Guerrilla warfare took place only once the colonial uh, government had been goaded into combat, and a more militant, formalized wing of the Mau Mau would form known as the KLFA, the Kenyan Land and Freedom Army, Army, and it was led by an individual named Edan Kimati. Uh, in, in his words, he says, the white settlers are like a drop in the ocean among the masses of the Kenyan people. And no matter what they do, they will never govern this country without our consent. Our primary aim is to dismantle their evil machinery, whatever the cost. What we have to do is to unite and organize ourselves for a long struggle until we drive them from our country. This, or, this army was well organized. It was swift. Uh, they engaged in uh, brief, efficient attacks and most often used silent weapons and, of course, at night. This was guerrilla warfare. Uh, there were a few later mass attacks that took place. One of the uh, unsavory examples would be the Lari Massacre, which we'll talk about in a future video. Their role, the KLFA's role, evolved after the war and during the concentration process, uh, which we will again talk about in a future video. There was also a lot of non-militant help from uh, basically villages that would help the Mau Mau in terms of supply lines, getting information. They would also steal ammunition from the colonial powers. Um, And there was also uh, an information war that the KLFA would engage in. They would actually get village kids to basically play games around British soldiers. And while they were playing these, these games, these kids would essentially listen to what the British soldiers were talking about for intel uh, and then transmit this information to the Mau Mau freedom fighters that were, of course, off in theme mountains around Mount Kenya. Uh, tactically and methodologically speaking, this was a wildly important set of tactics to make sure that the Mau Mau um, and the KLFA were always one step ahead of the, uh, of the British colonial powers. Eventually, this is going to lead to what the British would call an emergency. The emergency was declared after the assassination of one of the chiefs that had been named by the colonial oppressor, the British in this case. The governor of Kenya, Evelyn Baring, who actually happened to be the son of Lord Cromer, who also committed numerous colonial atrocities in Africa, specifically Egypt, uh, then allowed the military to do what they want through Operation Jock Scott. And Operation Jock Scott began with the mass arrest of perceived Mau Mau leaders in Nairobi, uh, which included uh, the aforementioned in a prior video, Jomo Kenyatta. 
The goal was to decapitate the Mau Mau movement before it gained too much steam. Unfortunately, Operation Jock Scott backfired. The Mau Mau only got stronger, even as Kenyatta and other leaders uh, are, are, were taken away to their own various camps. They actually become uh, symbolic martyrs of the movement, even though none of them are executed, at least not right away. British militarism inadvertently created new revolutionary soldiers among the Mau Mau. So essentially, as the British began to get more and more violent in their repression of the rebellion, it did not uh, it did not discourage the Mau Mau freedom fighters and in fact helped the recruitment process. The Mau Mau, in response, began the heavy targeting of settlers. To this point, they had mostly targeted other Kenyans that were loyal to the British, i.e. their brothers and sisters that were actually helping in the uh, colonization of Kenya. Mau Mau targeting of settlers uh, resulted in about 32 uh, colonizer deaths over the course of events, which is a minuscule number when we start talking about the British atrocities that took place in Kenya. But that, of course, is for a future video. The most famous of the uh, settler families that were targeted by the Mau Mau was the Ruck family. In turn, however, this settler fear of the Mau Mau um, and already existing racism of the British settlers towards uh, the Kenyans led to uh, vigilantism uh, against basically all blacks in Kenya by the white colonizer. In fact, there is there were programs to teach these settlers how to shoot. Um, and again, mass propaganda campaigns took place, essentially encouraging settlers to take uh, 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 to take the law into their own hands uh, against again either either loyalists or Mau Mau. There was no distinction made between them. British ground troops were flown in to formally occupy uh, the capital Nairobi, and while the Mau Mau basically head to the forests or the highlands around Mount Kenya, uh, Nairobi basically fell under uh, martial law, for lack of a better term. The British also began to conscript non-Kenyan Africans into the military. So they would get other Africans from some of their other colonial holdings like Tanganyika, Uganda, uh, Mauritius, and Egypt. The point was to make sure that there would be no loyalty uh, tied to uh, their their essentially attempted extermination, if not ethnic cleansing, of the Kikuyu people. Jomo Kenyatta during the emergency was put on a mock trial for two chief reasons. To calm British settlers down a little bit that were looking for justice and to lower the spirits of the Kenyans, again, specifically the Mau Mau freedom fighters that were fighting a guerrilla war in the jungles around Mount Kenya. The Mau Mau responded to this this mock trial with an attack on the uh, Naivasha police station. And importantly, this is where an aforementioned in a prior video massacre took place called the Lari Massacre, where 97 loyalists were killed, uh, essentially burned, uh, for living on former Kikuyu land. It is one of the massacres that is one of the transgressions that is often cited as uh, as an example of the wild violence of the Mau Mau. British public interest peaked when Granville Roberts painted the situation in Kenya uh, in the most blatantly cliche ways possible, that these individuals were insurgents and that they just don't know what's best for them, that the British know, of course, through their religion or their political processes or their way of life, their economic systems, they know what's best for Kenyans. How dare Kenyans challenge British authority? They must be, and this is where the T word was used specifically, they must be 
terrorists. Uh, of course, this is laughable to this day when uh, imperial or colonial powers go to other places around the planet and force them to live the way uh, uh, that the colonial power wants. Any sort of resistance, of course, must be uh, uh, an insurgency or these are terrorists. Uh, again, it's almost laughable at this point, but it still works. It works back in England. It works to this day back in places like the United States or Western Europe. They're still able to just throw this word around uh, without any real repercussions. What it does is it galvanizes the British public to see the Kikuyu specifically and the Mau Mau as wildly dangerous and that they will begin to support more and more violent measures to suppress this rebellion. The settlers go uh, essentially from just uh, rhetorical uh, white uh, supremacy to basically call for genocide. A quote by a Briton named Nottingham kind of colors this. He said, the only good kooky is a dead kooky. And again, that's a wildly offensive term. His words, not mine. Some would argue, some more quote-unquote enlightened Britons would argue that it's not necessarily the Kikuyu that are bad per se. It's the fact that they underwent the oathing ceremony that was discussed in a prior video. And perhaps if they can just get these individuals to recant their oath, they would be able to cleanse the Kikuyu and thus all of Kenya from this quote-unquote disease, as they like to call it. It was first revealed in 1952 to the British that they were also, of course, scoring their kills. I must stress that the British were scoring how many Kikuyu they could kill. There were bounties placed on certain Kikuyu's heads, and there were scoreboards left um, um, in various camps. They called them, quote-unquote, knobs. In, it's important to also state that this is when a formal war, during the emergency period, a formal war was declared on the Mau Mau. Uh, and that is when the, uh, the British general, George Erskine, basically thought the only way to end the Mau Mau rebellion is, in his words, and I quote, coercion through exemplary force, end quote. Uh, oddly, though, it's important to note that the military was not as violent as what were called pseudo-gangster forces, which were essentially paramilitary, not directly under the leadership of Erskine. They were basically, uh, for lack of a better term, like hired guns or mercenaries. They were led by an individual named Ian Hender Henderson, and they were allowed much more freedom of engagement against Mau Mau forces, um, and not just Mau Mau forces, Mau Mau sympathizers, villages. They could do essentially whatever they want. Their moral bankruptcy essentially led to strong settler relations. In other words, that the British settlers, the non-combatants, right, just the colonizers, felt more of a kinship with the pseudo-gangsters than they did with the British military because the pseudo-gangster forces were more violent. Often overlooked during this time period, during the formal war period, is that the Royal Air Force dropped as many as six million bombs on the forests of Kenya throughout what they called the emergency. In terms of emergency regulations, all non-combatants received communal punishments. If you were Kikuyu, curfews, there was a confiscation of Kikuyu property, Kikuyu publications were banned, they also disbanded all political organizations, and there was a suspension of due process. Colonial control of the markets, transportation, and labor fell now under the British government, and importantly, now allowed, again, under the governor's orders, were detention of all Kikuyu without a trial. In 1954, 25,000 Britons uh, eventually quarantined Nairobi and began to purge all Kikuyu, Meru, and Embu tribal members through a temporary imprisonment process and a screening at what was called the Langata Camp. 
The Mau Mau, or admitted Mau Mau, or accused Mau Mau, were further detained. Kikuyu women and children were sent to what were called reserves that were becoming increasingly overcrowded. As many as 50,000 Kikuyu were sent to these uh, reserves in 1954 alone. There was also co-optation of other Kenyans that were not part of the three aforementioned tribes, and this created a new group of colonial power. In this case, it was Kenyans controlled by the British, used to abuse other Kenyans. They were called the Home Guard, and these Home Guard were manned by individuals called Ascaris. The screening process, or as the settlers began to call it, the British settlers in this case, the third degree was carried out by all layers of both British and other Kenyan authorities. So it is both, of course, white and black in this case. It's also taken up by the police, and as I already mentioned, the Ascaris, the Home Guard, the British military, and as mentioned in a prior video, vigilante settlers, uh, as well as pseudo-gangsters. So an example for an example of what the screening process looked like, it was essentially torture. And our sources come to us, in this case, from Carolyn Elkins' uh, expose historical book called Britain's Gulag. And I quote, this comes from a man named Kirigumi. We would be sent to the camp where we'd be interrogated. To be interrogated means to be beaten. It wasn't just to be asked questions. It was to be beaten, holding yourself like this. You would be hit there. You would be beaten here on the stomach and the back very hard. You would also place your legs thus and be hit on the ankle and the other which would go this way and was hit again to go back. Then you would be asked to stand up and someone else would take your place. Margaret uh, Nyaruai says, and I quote, Questions like the number of oaths I had taken, where my husband went, where two of my stepbrothers had gone. They'd gone into the forest. I was badly whipped while naked. They didn't care that I had just given birth. In fact, I think my baby was lucky it was not killed like the rest. Apart from the beatings, women used to have banana leaves and flowers inserted into their vaginas and rectums, as well as have their breasts squeezed with a pair of pliers, after which a woman would say everything because of the pain. Even the men had their testicles squeezed with pliers to make them confess. After such things were done to me, I told them everything. I survived after that torture, but I still had a lot of pain in my body, even today from it. This is key to understanding how far the colonial power was willing to go to put down this rebellion. They were attempting to get these accused Mau Mau or Mau Mau sympathizers to recount their oathing process, the oathing process that essentially had galvanized them to resist all colonial oppression and essentially forced the British to leave Kenya and grant Kenya its independence. These reserves, if you were lucky enough to be taken to a reserve, were fenced in. They were surrounded by spiked moats and guard towers, and you were held at gunpoint against your will. Essentially, what they were doing, slowly but surely, were concentrating Kikuyu into these camps, these camps of torture. I must stress this, that this happened in the 1950s, after the English had quote-unquote helped the Allies liberate concentration camps throughout Eastern Europe, concentration camps used by Nazis to oppress the Jewish population, gypsies, etc., and they patted themselves on the back for being uh, so, so heroic, especially the Winston Churchills, who we'll talk about in a future video, And yet, less than a decade later, the British are doing the exact same thing that the Nazis had done in Kenya during Operation Anvil. 
we are picking up with the process called the pipeline. This pipeline was a British process of concentrating Kikuyu freedom fighters uh, to basically douse the Mau Mau rebellion uh, through violence and torture. And again, I must stress this is the creation of essentially a series of concentration camps uh, by the British. The goal here was to protect public perception, especially back in England. So they argued that they were essentially rounding these individuals up and torturing them and trying to get them to recant their oath because this was part of a, and I quote, rehabilitation process. I must stress that there were 1.6 million Kikuyu in Kenya that at some point in time had to face this rehabilitation process or at least on the periphery of the rehabilitation process. The goal through the prior, uh, in the prior video, we discussed of Operation Anvil, of gathering these individuals up and sending them through the screening process and through this detention process, of course, uh, and the suspension, of course, of any sort of recourse legislatively, was to end the Mau Mau Rebellion. One of the important individuals that was the orchestrator of this was a man named Thomas Asquith. He started to believe that the Mau Mau Oath itself was why these Kikuyu had become evil, or to use the word that was being thrown around back in England, terrorists. Aside from Thomas Asquith's uh, belief that the Oath itself was evil, they also thought there was a cultural flaw in the Kikuyu. So they brought in what is called, at that time, they no longer exist, but at that, that time, an ethno-psychiatrist. His name was Carruthers. And he essentially used his fake science to uh, try and analyze why the Kikuyu were culturally flawed in their psychosis. Uh, again, this has already been debunked by all real psychology that is, exists today, but it kind of shows how backwards the colonial mindset was in the 1950s. Thomas Asquith modeled his pipeline that he was going to create, and again, this is going to be a streamlined system or process of concentrating the rehabilitation process against the Kikuyu. He modeled it on a system uh, from Malaya, another British colony in East Asia that they used to, again, quote-unquote, rehabilitate communists, and in this case, what they saw as lesser Asian peoples. Again, just to show how wildly racist the British colonial process was, if you have not picked up on that by our prior videos on this topic. The pipeline that Asquith created had three color-coded levels, uh, and I, I don't think there's anything tongue-in-cheek here about it. A white-level Kikuyu was only a mild Mau Mau, a non-threat. A gray-level Mau Mau or Kikuyu was only a moderate threat, and they would be sent to the labor camps. A black-coated Mau Mau was a hardcore, probably took the seventh layer oath, the Batuni oath, and they would be forced to stay in screening and torture camps, uh, essentially until they recanted their oath, and were willing to then also oftentimes work for the British to sell out other Mau Mau freedom fighters. Throughout the emergency, various members of the Kikuyu Nation would be moved up and down the process. So you could start maybe as white and be moved to gray, or you could be moved from gray to black, or black back down to gray. This process process allowed for a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of, I don't even want to use the word freedom there, but you were able to move back and forth, not again of your own volition, but based on the whims of your colonial oppressor in this case. 
This is where we see, of course, the birth of gulags in Kenya. Um, as many as 100 of these concentration camps were created throughout the Kenyan countryside. Many of them, of course, were overcrowded. Many of them uh, 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 served alongside the reserves where a lot of the Kikuyu women and children were placed. And they were often in the highlands. It created a logistical nightmare even sometimes of getting Kikuyu out of like concentrated urban areas into these highlands. So transportation was an issue. Oftentimes that meant there were forced uh, brutal marches um, that took place where a lot of people, of course, died on the march outside of urban areas to these reserves. Uh, essentially, the British decided one way to make use of the pipeline that could serve their colonial oppression was through labor. Labor was put into place by what was known as the Swinnerton Plan. And in their minds, labor would help rehabilitate these Mau Mau freedom fighters. Uh, labor included everything from like fixing the overused soil by British white settlers to uh, 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 helping cultivate cash crops. Uh, they also thought it would help free up some space in the camps and allow for non-Kikuyu to make use of essentially prison labor, for lack of a better term, to make use of slave labor. So these Kikuyu were basically uh, put into enslavement in this case to profit the colonial power. Britain in this case. All lands, titles, and wealth that a Kikuyu might have had uh, was, of course, stripped and then redistributed either to, again, British settlers or loyalist Kenyans that, of course, were willing to work their other fellow Kenyans to death. This is an important note because all of the wealth acquired by other Kenyans during that time period remains the case, to re remains in the same hands, the same family lines, to this day. Also of note is that even uh, lesser Mau Mau's on the re reserves were rarely paid for their labor, and they were still charged hut and pull taxes that were discussed in the very first video in this series. So essentially, they weren't paid very much, but still charged taxes anytime they built a house or, a, a, as a pull tax ind indicates, just for merely existing. These were usually done at some of these softer, softer quote-unquote camps like Fort Hall. Anyway, the Minister of Defense of the colonial process here at this point, a man named Cusack, or a man named Cusack also was quoted as saying, based on this labor process in the Swinnerton plan, that we are slave traders and the employment of our slaves is the public works department. Moderate camps like the Gray Camp would include Mbakasi uh, and McKinnon Road and Manyani. It's important to note that those of you who know a little bit about Kenya uh, know that Mbakasi eventually became like the airport. So even the airport to this day was built by this slave labor during the Mau Mau Rebellion period. To really drive home how disgustingly hypocritical the British were uh, at this point in time is that a lot of these camps would have messages written above the entrance gates that were very reminiscent of, uh, of Nazi sayings, for lack of a better term. So one of the welcome signs outside of Fort Hall, for example, one of these camps, uh, is it stated, and I quote, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And the uh, Nagenya camp said, labor and freedom. And I quote, labor and freedom. Interestingly enough, these accusations are not... Uh, uh, are not without precedent. For example, the Soviet gulag, Solovetsky, and I quote, you would walk through and see this above your head, through labor, freedom. And of course, the very famous Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz, and I quote, work, 
makes you free. See, these similarities, again, are not just like coincidental. It is intentional. And again, as mentioned in the prior video, this irony cannot be lost on the listener that the British, again, patting themselves on the back for their heroism and their defiance to the Nazi powers during World War II, less than a decade later, themselves were acting as Nazis in Africa, and the world turned a blind eye. Individuals walking under these signs and having to read Abandon Hope, All Ye Who Enter Here, or Labor and Freedom. They were marched single file, and as they were marched through, they were beaten by Ascaris. Of course, these were other Ken Kenyans that were willing to work for the British. Uh, they were then dipped in a solution. Many actually drowned as they were dipped into this solution to basically cleanse them of all of their diseases. They were given yellow shorts, a blanket, a numbered bracelet, and then rescreened, which was a nice word of saying tortured until they recanted their Mau Mau oaths. Um, some of the examples of the screening we heard in another video uh, it included some torture, of course, torture to uh, uh, all parts of the body, but focusing heavily on the genitals, which shows, of course, the gross dehumanization that the British and, of course, the loyalists were willing to uh, uh, impart upon these accused Mau Mau rebels. These camps had poor sanitation, constant labor, and close quarters, which led to numerous disease epidemics. Typhoid wrought havoc throughout most of these camps. This led to inquiries, and all of these inquiries uh, back in England were actually defended by none other than Winston Churchill, who after a brief hiatus from power after World War II was back in the driver's seat. And again, this guy that we have somehow turned into a hero in Western civilization for his leadership and defiance to the Nazi powers is himself defending concentration camps less than a decade later. The man is not a hero. Detainees from the camps were often sent out to build more prison camps for their fellow Mau Mau. These are important because as this began to become part of the process, they brought with them many of the diseases from the camp. So basically, if you were new and you got sent to a new camp, you were going to get a disease right off the bat because the diseases were brought by other prisoners who built your camp. And this led to more and more districts having to deal with typhoid epidemics. Some Mau Mau did eventually renounce their oaths because of this process and become screeners themselves. But I must stress that many of the Mau Mau did not. They remained loyal to their movement. And many of the Kikuyu that did not claim Mau Mau or had taken any of the seven stage oaths remained loyal, of course, to their fellow countrymen. What we'll find out is how resistance worked in the camps because even though many of these individuals had ended up in these camps, resistance didn't end. Resistance actually took place in the camps as well. And these brave Mau Mau freedom fighters must be celebrated for that. Today, we are picking up with life, quote unquote, behind the wire. I can't take credit for that quote. Again, that quote comes to us from our main inspirational source for this series, uh, Britain's Gulag by Carolyn Elkins. Uh, essentially, though, what we want to talk about today is how the Mau Mau resistance fighters, even after being captured and put into the uh, disgusting concentration camps that the British had set up throughout the Kenyan countryside, remained uh, resolute and continued their resistance in the concentration camps. Um, Mau Mau 
communal values in these camps grew over time. There was safety in numbers and being in the camps created more and more solidarity. Small organizations within the camps began to form with their own social structures and ways to survive, again, concentration, uh, for lack of a better term. Even new leaders began to rise to prominence within the camps, like Josiah Kariuki. Uh, we get his account in what was called Mau Mau Detainee. And these leaders were often selected uh, somewhat democratically uh, or through consensus by, their, of course, their peers, by how well they were able to help their fellow prisoners essentially cope with the horrors of disease and torture um, and, and essentially uh, over, being overworked. Some of the examples of the ways that these individuals would be able to uh, basically cope would be written down and codified into uh, uh, basically publications. And I, I use the word publications super loosely as these publications would not be like formally published. They would, of course, uh, be taken through um, uh, what is called the Manyani Times, but I'll get to that in just a second. But some of these rules for basically surviving the camps were called the 12 Laws of Laudwar, uh, the Magetta Manifesto. These are just a few examples. In fact, let's discuss that now. The Manyani Times was essentially like this, this, uh, this collection of works that were usually smuggled both within and between different camps in a whole bunch of very creative ways. In other words, uh, uh, it was not like a formal newspaper or anything along those lines. It was anything but. Books, of course, would be written in. Books that already existed as some of the camps had libraries. Uh, of course, uh, messages would be hidden in these books, and these books would then be distributed throughout camps or between different camps. Messages would be written into uh, actual cigarette butts, and those cigarette butts would be, of course, flicked outside of the camp and then picked up by children and then distributed to other camps. Um, in fact, even uh, essentially uh, uh, non-written communication would be part of what was colloquially called the Manyani Times. Uh, individuals would pretend to go into seizures and their bodily movements would actually be communicating um, um, certain sort of messages that could be spread throughout camps. Uh, there would also be unfamiliar slang used, uh, certain Kikuyu slang um, that conveyed uh, clandestine messages that were meant to be spread. Anyway, all of this put together became, again, what's called the Manyani Times. And this is where we get things like the 12 Laws of Laud War. Regardless, it's important to note that all of this reveals the remaining agency of not just the Mau Mau rebels that were caught, but other Kikuyu. Whether or not those Kikuyu were fully sympathetic to the Mau Mau is, is irrelevant here. This sort of agency reveals how far people were willing to go to ensure not just their survival in the camps, but maintain the trajectory of an independence-minded ethos in Kenya. There was also an impromptu schooling that took place in these camps. Essentially, the schools would crop up on the camps, not created by the British colonial uh, uh, leaders, not created by the Kenyan loyalists, but by the detainees themselves. And they would be schooled on a whole host of subjects, but of course, most importantly... Kikuyu history, and they would reassert their spiritual beliefs, they would create solidarity, and importantly teach the wild hypocrisy of European Christianity, uh, which is important to note because as we've discussed in prior videos, one of the things that the British sought to do in many of their colonial processes was impart their ideologies on the colonial subjects. Of course, we know Christianity being one of them and discussing how superior their ideology is. But of course, if anyone reads the uh, Gospels, they would note that concentration camps and torture and exploitation are absolutely not what quote-unquote Jesus would do. So it shows the hypocrisy of the British and they are able to deconstruct that in these camps through this education system. Oftentimes, 
this schooling led to new oathing ceremonies on the camps, which is a, an important revelation if we consider going back a few videos in the series that the entire pipeline process began because of oathing ceremonies. The fact that they were taking place on the camps uh, shows the resiliency of the Mau Mau Freedom Fighters. There were also, as one might imagine, within these camps, sellouts. These sellouts were called fundi. These sellouts basically used their trades or skills to barter with the guards or their colonial masters for better treatment. Sometimes they even sold sex, uh, which is important to note. Some of them were informants as well. And the informants, if they were caught by other Mau Mau in the camp, were often killed by the Mau Mau. It must also be stated, however, that some of the home guards or the Askaris that were meant to basically guard the Mau Mau rebels in these concentration camps um, became empathetic to the plight of their detainees and were not necessarily willing to torture them uh, 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 to the, the, the levels of the British. In fact, and I quote, they were very ashamed for what they had done. They beat us because they hated themselves for what they were doing. It must also be stressed that those living in these camps uh, uh, were not completely powerless themselves. They began to write letters and smuggle those out, i.e. the way of the Magnani Times, but not just through the way of the Magnani Times. Technically, they were allotted the right to write letters by the camp leaders themselves. I mean, and this, this went all the way up to the governor of Kenya himself, Evelyn Baring. They're supposedly supposed to be able to write letters. And most of these letters, of course, went through their own screening process, and many never even made it out of the camp. But the few that did, did sometimes make their way uh, either to the capital, the colonial capital, capital in Nairobi, or sometimes out to, new, to international news outlets, and some all the way back to London itself. It must be stressed that in these letters, it was not lost on the detainees how disgustingly hypocritical their British colonial masters had become. The letters went everywhere. In these letters that eventually made it out of the camps, they appealed. Most importantly, they thought of what Kenyan would be when they won their independence. And the fact that they were discussing the ways that they were going to win their independence means that being put in these concentration camps had not basically doused the flame of, of freedom and equality that the, many of these Kenyan freedom fighters had spent their entire lives uh, uh, basically working towards. It's important to understand that many of these letters revealed a keen insight into the historical context in which they found themselves. One of the letters that's super interesting to think about is a letter titled, Is This the British System or the Nazi System? These letters started to prove effective, especially the letters that had made their way back to uh, uh, London. And it's important to understand that the letter's efficacy led to making them illegal within certain camps. Many of them were purged with the from the record, and if you were caught writing a letter, you were often punished. Many of these punishments took place at camps for women, because the women were granted just slightly more freedom than the Mau Mau men. So at a camp called Kamiti, for example, letter writing became a prominent way of showing one's resistance and defiance in the face of British colonialism. Um, it was even, the, the, the camp in question was even called the eyes and ears of Mau Mau because of the way that they were able to, of course, disseminate information, not just between the camps, but out to the countryside among remaining uh, free freedom fighters still fighting um, the good fight. This camp was run by Catherine Warren Gosh. She was nicknamed Mahuru, i.e. the Eagle. Her favorite tactic to use, especially against letter writers, was torture. And that torture wasn't just physical, it was often psychological. She would threaten the lives of their children. In fact, 15% of the women in this camp were in this concentration camp uh, with their kids. Their kids were there. 
An example of what life was like in this camp comes to us from Wali Warimu, again from the book Britain's Gulag by Carolyn Elkins. She has this to say, and I quote, They informed me that they had just killed my husband at a place called Mumbuchi, and then they started beating me. They were using their gun butts to hit me. One would hit me, and the blow would throw me to the other. One would hit me and throw me to the next. Nobody cared about where they were hitting me. I was beaten until I was confused, and I didn't care anymore if they killed me. My two-year-old son, who had been woken up by the noise and my screams, ran to me, passing between the legs of the soldiers. As I was being thrown by from the blows from one soldier to the next, my son was just trying to hide, myself, hide himself between my legs. They were then shouting at me, telling me that they were going to give me my independence." that they had done what they had done to the husband to get me. They did not seem to care that there was a small child, scared to death and screaming his head off. As I was being thrown from one soldier to the next, my son fell down and was trampled by these frenzied soldiers. I was beaten so much that my body had grown numb until I could no longer feel the pain. They then took me outside and the last thing I saw was my son's dead body lying on the floor of my house. These letters and these accounts that would eventually slowly but surely be funneled out of the camps uh, led to investigation by the colonial power. And that investigation by a governor named Twining at this point in time revealed, and I quote, that violence in the form of whipping on the soles of the feet, burning with lighted cigarettes and tying leather thongs around the neck and dragging victims along the ground had been used on the interrogated. Between 170 and 200 were gathered of whom at least 32 were badly injured and others received some injury. Hayward himself took an active part in the chastisement of the Africans and is said to have threatened to shoot one man after pointing his revolver at him. So even the British colonial officials, as they began to investigate what was going on at these camps, and even during the screening process before the camps, showed that torture was becoming a prominent method of, 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 of punishment. Um, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter age uh, or gender. Um, it, it, and it didn't even matter if you were actually in a, a, a convicted Mau Mau freedom fighter, you were going to be tortured in this process. As more and more inquiries were being made, both within Kenya and back in England, and of course around the world, uh, the pipeline system began to break down just a little bit. This led to a new and kind of final solution, and, and that word should not be lost on our listeners here, known as villagization, which basically meant the concentration of all other Kikuyu uh, that were not already in camps. 1,050,899 Kikuyu were forced into 230,000 huts, merely forcefully moving these individuals from where they were to these basically pre-made pre, pre villages by the British colonial uh, powers led to about 50,000 deaths. And that's just in the process of moving the individuals there. The home guards began to round them up and to make sure that these individuals would never leave the villages that were being set up by the colonial powers, they torched all of their old villages. All of the land was then redistributed to other Kenyans that were not Kikuyu. This was heavily aimed at punishing what were called, quote-unquote, the heathen women and children that were loyal or sympathetic to the Mau Mau cause. The women in these new villages were forced to dig the trenches outside, and these trenches were then, of course, filled with barbed wire borders and what were called nyambo, which were essentially sharpened spike sticks. They were digging these ditches, oftentimes with, like, their own children strapped to their backs. Also created in these villages for punishment were something called 
Nadakis, or better known as the hole. Essentially, holes were dug that were about four feet deep, so if you were accused of basically doing anything that went against either a home guard or a British colonial official's uh, uh, directive, you were stuck in this hole that's four feet deep. And it was full, half with water and sticks. It was unlit and overcrowded to ensure that you would never receive any comfort. You couldn't sleep, you couldn't eat, and of course you could not drink. Uh, while you were in this hole. Mau Mau sympathizers or admitted Mau Mau sympathizers in these villages were publicly hung, shot. Children were often skewered on those uh, sharpened sticks already, mess, uh, already mentioned, and they were often paraded around. Others were put in bags and lit a fire. And again, our source on this is Britain, Britain's Gulag, the book by Carolyn Elkins. Part of the psychological torture was getting, uh, was stripping women down and forcing them to pose in sexually suggestive positions with their older male relatives, grandfathers, uncles. Um, yeah, essentially there was just no, uh, no action too trite for either the home guards or the British uh, officials uh, to impart upon these women that were in these villages. Uh, during this period of time, um, diseases again began to spread relatively quickly. We've already discussed both in this video and prior videos that typhoid was a major problem, but eventually scurvy as well, and even diarrhea because the diets were so bad that people were literally dying of diarrhea in these camps. The colonial medical department um, even began to take notice and their uh, uh, inquiries were ignored, both at the uh, colonial level in Nairobi and at the international level all the way back in London. All of this eventually worsened with what I had already mentioned, the shutdown of uh, Thomas Asquith's concentration camp pipeline as thousands of both white and gray uh, level Mau Mau were returned to these villages and it led to even more overcrowding. So many overlooked side effects uh, basically were created during this time period that are often overlooked and still affect Kenya today uh, that must be discussed in the, in, in the village. Uh, PTSD would be one of those. Guilt and shame, especially talking about when we're talking about like the, the psychological torture. Um, even what would be called uh, half-caste babies or nusu nusu because of like the amount of like mass rape that took place on these camps. These led to, again, numerous social and cultural issues that many uh, Kikuyu are still, again, seeking reconciliation for today. Another side effect that we must discuss was the introduction of loyalty cards. So if you ended up back at the village and you acted like a good Kikuyu under your colonial masters, you were given a loyalty card, which often gave you access to land or employment or your prior resources. If you remained defiant, you did not get a loyalty card. This, of course, created division in the camps. And that division, again, is another side effect that is, exists to this day, that many of the people that were given these materials material rewards, uh, garnered at least moderate wealth, and we know how wealth works in, in certain systems, certain economic systems. That wealth exists to this day. Those that remain defiant never garnered that wealth, and of course are still suffering uh, from socioeconomic stratification. So that's important to understand. This took place at the villagization level. Villagization was kind of the winding down of the, uh, basically the colonial horrors that the British were committing in Kenya. Today we are going to pick up with the revelations of what took place during the villagization process back in the UK. In other words, what was taking place both in the concentration camps along the pipeline, as well as the reserve villages, um, began, news of this began to make its way back to England, and people started to 
to really ask some very tough questions about British colonialism in Kenya, and of course, uh, globally as well. By the mid-1950s, enough of the letters had been leaked out of these camps, and again, some had made it to international news sources, some had made it to English parliamentarians, and it's important to understand this forced a number of different inquiries. Most of the leaks, of course, revealed the horrors and hypocrisy of the entire British colonial process, especially within the historical context of a post-World War II era. Um, The fact that they actually had concentration camps and were torturing and killing so many people after they had just, quote-unquote, helped rid the world of Nazis showed, uh, again, some important I don't even know if we want to call them hypocrisies. Perhaps we'll just flat out call it uh, moral bankruptcy. And many in England were not comfortable with this. One of those individuals in England that was not comfortable with this was uh, uh, Eileen Fletcher, whose uh, groundbreaking work at the time was called The Truth About Kenya. It basically was a whistleblowing work. This kind of uh, allowed um, parliamentarians themselves, like Barbara Castle and her Labor Party, to launch more and more inquiries into the colonial process that was taking place in Kenya. Many of these inquiries were staunchly obfuscated by all layers of colonial government. Again, starting at the very top, Winston Churchill himself, the quote-unquote Western hero of World War II, shows his true colors here by basically trying to ensure that all of the real goings-on at the pipeline camps as well as in the villages would not make its way back to uh, the British public or to Parliament at this point in time. Uh, He was not necessarily ashamed at what he had okayed. I don't want to accuse him of doing it because he was not in Kenya, but of what he basically knew was going on there and basically was willing to look beyond. He wanted to make sure that was not getting back to the British public nor to other people, of course, in the world. I want to stress that much of the discourse taking taking place back in in England, uh, especially at a governmental level, was not necessarily about attempting to make amends for the wrongdoing of the entire colonial process in Kenya. It was more about now uh, damage control regarding England's reputation both on a concurrent global level, again, amid post-World War II and Cold War uh, relations, but also importantly, like historically, they didn't want any stains on their history. So essentially, they were basically trying to make sure that the whistleblowing didn't go too far, again, not because they felt any sort of uh, uh, guilt or felt bad in any way for what was taking place in the pipeline process or during Operation Anvil or, or during the villagization process and all the torture and all of the death that had taken place. They wanted the British Empire, remember, to some sort of great progressive civilizer of all of the quote-unquote lesser peoples around the world rather than what it was, one of the most devastatingly oppressive regimes the world has ever known. It's during this time period that back on the ground in Kenya that the pipeline begins to crumble. Thomas Asquith's uh, uh, concentration camp pipeline begins to crumble and a new operation is launched. It's actually the operation that's going to kind of be the nail in the coven for the colonial process. It's called Operation Progress. And it is Operation Progress that basically just takes everything that had already been taking place and and tries to make it, uh, quote unquote, more efficient. So rather than torching individuals at like one at a time, they will be torturing individuals 50 at a time. And if they can get most of them to just publicly recant, they feel like they have done their job regarding rehabilitation. This takes place under a new leader as Thomas Asquith is replaced by a man named Terence Gavingham. 
Interestingly enough, Terrence Gavingham, uh, there's actually a, a, an interview you can find on YouTube with this guy, and he never recants. He never admits uh, feeling any sort of empathy or sympathy or guilt for what he oversaw. It's in a documentary. It's a short, like, 40-minute documentary uh, called White Terror. Just put that in your YouTube search bar, and you can watch this individual essentially just show, like, just dead eyes, just nothing for what he took part in. It's absolutely disgusting. Anyway, um... It's interesting to note that it is uh, back in England as Operation Progress is engaging in just a more efficient form of, I suppose, torture that the parliamentarians um, begin to talk about how they're going to eventually, quote unquote, grant Kenya its independence. And it's important to note that in their own minds that Kenyan independence can only take place on British terms and using, of course, a British approved form of constitutionalism and that the leadership will always be, of course, somewhat loyal to England and most importantly, England's narrative of events um, that took place. So let's talk a little bit about that real quick. What is the legacy that we have here? There has been no recompensation given to the victims, again, mostly, most of which were either Kikuyu and to a slightly lesser extent, Meru, Embu, and, and even Maasai. No recompensation has been given. Um, basically, loyalists and individuals that were willing to sell out their own fellow countrymen to the colonial powers that be, and in some cases, even seize their land themselves and committed torturous atrocities themselves um, actually remain politically and financially powerful. It can even be tied back to the loyalty cards they were given under uh, uh, English colonial rule that, that granted them access to these resources. And yet, underground, a decades-long heroic legacy, especially in the Kikuyu tribe, is lauded the world over because the Mau Mau were the resistance fighters. And although some might argue the Mau Mau themselves did not heroically march into Nairobi and liberate it, it was their actions that motivated, of course, the independence process and got people even back in England talking about Okay, I think this colonialism needs to end. In terms of other important legacies that we must note, especially when we consider um, um, how this, how the British colonial process in Kenya uh, can be juxtaposed uh, uh, with other parts of the legacy that we must discuss is how we frame uh, the English uh, colonization of Kenya, and of course how it uh, how it ended with with torture and death. Um, in terms of casualty count, we must understand that as many as 300,000 Kenyans were killed just in that last decade of British colonization. In fact, our source on this is an Asian lawyer, uh, lawyer named Fitz de Sousa. He says, and I quote, by the end, I would say there were several hundred thousand killed, 100 easily, though more like two to 300,000. All these people just never came back when it was over. This was a form of ethnic cleansing on the part of the British government, and there's no doubt about that in my mind. In terms of the rhetorical legacy, I think a 1958 letter uh, uh, kind of sums it all up really well for us. This letter came out of one of the uh, concentration camps and made its way, of course, uh, uh, all the way back to England and was eventually published. And this comes from an anonymous uh, detainee in one of the camps. It says, and I quote, We consider this the most brutal and inhuman treatment ever compared to the Nazi concentration camp. As we have nowhere to appeal, we now appeal to the high court of world public opinion. 
Finally, after a long and drawn-out legislative process, while more and more Kikuyu were dying, on December 12th of 1963, uh, Kenya was formally granted its independence. And immediately put into leadership were uh, former nationalist leaders that were willing to negotiate with the British, cover up the past, and attempt to set Kenya on a course that would be acceptable to British sensibilities. <laughs> 